Hello everyone and welcome to DCN series of podcasts highlighting democracy, key components of reviving society after crisis. I'm Nancy Mukherjee, your moderator and host. And today our guest speakers are Sviat Adzimbaya, an international security digital diplomacy fellow at Fletcher School, Tufts University, and Armen Kharazyan, former senior foreign service officer. Together with our regional experts We are going to talk about digital public diplomacy and foreign affairs. So far, uh, because we see more discussion on digital diplomacy, especially during this global health crisis, let's discover more what are the main changes in foreign affairs during this digitalization um, era. Um, Mr. Harazan, what do you think about this? Um, does digital forms of diplomacy give less or more space for negotiations and communications? And Nancy, sometimes they help, sometimes they may uh, hinder diplomacy. It depends on the manner and purpose and mastery applied when using digital means to pursue diplomacy and public diplomacy at that. Diplomacy is the conduct of foreign affairs. It's an instrument to conduct foreign affairs, along with other instruments uh, at the disposal of nations. Public diplomacy is the way in which uh, various governments, through sponsored efforts, reach out the public of another country. Uh, in an attempt to directly communicate their policy. And sometimes if you look at, uh, let's say, uh, the, the Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, at how Britannica defines public diplomacy, it identifies two things uh, associated with what it means, branding and political advocacy, pursuit of strategies. So both can benefit from the digital means uh, that what dig- what modern digital means afford and may also uh, uh, suffer from it uh, depending on how one uses it. If populist leaders engaged uh, in public diplomacy uh, and use digital means to pursue their objectives, then that may not necessarily uh, be of a benefit to either the nation on whose behalf that diplomacy is being communicated or the target nation but sometimes they can be useful as well. Thank you so much. And Mr. Atzinbaya, what are, in your opinion, the most important as- aspects that the young diplomats should pay more attention to um, while um, being in this digital era and the digital public diplomacy? Oh, I guess two things at least. Uh, one is having a sense of purpose coupled with a well thought and realized idea, what do we want to uh, do with diplomacy? Uh, it, uh, diplomacy not about communication and tech, as Armin also noted, uh, could be used negatively. Uh, sometimes we tend to uh, favor the notion of strategic communication, and I'm a great proponent. I love good, well-conducted, purposeful communication, but <clears throat> in many countries, strategic communication has been abused. Uh, under the pretext of strategic communication has nothing to do with strategic communication, but a lot of propaganda is being communicated across the globe Um, in mostly uh, less democratic countries, but sometimes in democratic countries too here in Europe, uh, in in many cases there. So young diplomats, I imagine, would 
pay uh, attention to what they want from diplomacy, from digital diplomacy, from digital public diplomacy, whatever we call it is diplomacy, uh, public, digital, or any other sort is just manifestation uh, and the tactical uh, manner of it. And uh, the other would be uh, really understanding the text. Sometimes the diplomats, I mean, classically speaking, um, or even like old-fashioned diplomats, many of them are great at diplomacy, uh, but some of them miss um, the uh, depth of understanding tech. And that's not their fault. It became um, revolutionized now, a couple of years ago, and it is being revolutionized uh, in the weeks, months, and years to come. So um, being able to adapt uh, and understand tech, not exactly at the level of being able to code, but know um, what you're talking about to maximize your own uh, goals and objectives. I think these two components would... Does it mean that old diplomats are not adapted to this modern era? Technologies, do you mean that? Some of them, yes. Um, I don't discriminate against age or anything. There are many are, you know, many years older than us and uh, their grasp of, uh, of, of technology or the use of technology or having a lot of reach and connection with the broader public internationally. Uh, but I'm speaking broadly, uh, someone uh, who would miss to understand tech well will unfortunately not be able uh, to get out there uh, and make his or her uh, uh, voice heard where it belongs. <clears throat> so. Uh, um, young people who are now entering profession um, or are there and want to grow uh, would want to do it differently and understand tech well. If I may uh, jump in, um, I think one area that doesn't work well with public digital communication of diplomacy is discretion. So diplomacy is a discrete pursuit sometimes. Sometimes it's a public pursuit depends on the diplomacies, on the aim of, of that diplomatic effort, on its objectives. Generally, diplomacy has been, because of the special skill it requires, because of the target audience, characterizes what diplomacy does. The foreign front of the foreign policy of a government, uh, diplomacy requires discretion and, and highly specialized skills. And also it works to be effective. It works hand in hand with the other instruments that governments have to pursue their national objectives, such as defense and intelligence, but also economic power. So diplomacy in of itself is not an objective. It's an instrument uh, along with other instruments. And among those instruments, it's one of the most discreet, most effective when it's most discreetly uh, deployed just like intelligence. And so sometimes publicity that comes with using digital means to communicate diplomacy, especially public diplomacy, uh, militates against the required discretion that one needs to have effective diplomacy. So I think when digital diplomacy is deployed to facilitate policy, that's generally conducted through traditional diplomatic means and diplomatic channels with due regard to the 
sometimes classified nature and sometimes really discretionary, quiet nature of diplomatic uh, activity. When digital diplomacy is deployed to support and facilitate the main diplomatic effort, then that could be highly effective. Sometimes digital diplomacy gets in a way of actual <laughs> diplomacy needs to be conducted uh, discreetly to succeed. And, and, and that causes uh, frustration. Uh, so again, it depends on how one uses modern digital means. But diplomacy generally being a discrete uh, area of uh, activity, those digital means sometimes are not even applicable to you know, properly deployed diplomatic effort. Take uh, Zoom, let's say. Zoom has, sort of, in the era of pandemic, Zoom has become a a widely, a universal way uh, in which uh, people located in, in various countries communicate and conduct their busy international business. Governments may not always be able to use the kind of Zoom that we use right now. The Zoom.gov for the US government, let's say, for instance, that the US government uses to conduct its business. And Zoom.gov is very different from Zoom. It has fewer features. <laughs> there's, a, uh, there's an enhanced security that comes with using those protocols. And it's just not it's just not publicly available to conduct public business. So uh, when it comes to government business, governments uh, are discriminatory in terms of what sort of digital means they use to conduct their business. However, a government may use Zoom simply to communicate with the public of another country. But that's not necessarily the kind of diplomacy that governments engage in when they talk through their diplomatic representatives. So again, uh, it's technology, it's how one uses it, it's how one tailors to the needs and objectives of a particular effort. Um, Not necessarily good and bad, but technology allows uh, for a faster communication, faster outreach, uh, faster dissemination, broader exposure. Uh, whether it's good or bad depends on who does it and, and how does one do it. It also makes countries vulnerable. I'm sorry. <laughs> it also makes the communicator vulnerable because digital means are also uh, easier to penetrate and uh, manipulate. A broad access to digital means to use to conduct diplomacy, one also needs to be concerned about how one protects their own infrastructure, communication infrastructure, and their own speech uh, from uh, undue uh, external interference. And what, Mr. Svia, think about this? Um, I would add um, one point I agree mostly with Armin said. Uh, one point I would agree in terms of uh, diplomacy has evolved and changed. Uh, and primarily who monopolizes, if there's anyone uh, entity monopolizing diplomacy is the state. Has been there for a while, and by while I mean centuries. Uh, now, um, when we speak about digital diplomacy, um, some players who are not governmental, who are not non-governmental, but corporate players come into the play. One of them being, say, Microsoft. Microsoft now has uh, created a, a fancy department where every millennial or uh, Generation Z or before uh, anybody else who wants to contribute to doing some good work uh, would work at Microsoft, which is digital diplomacy 
department uh, as, uh, as, as part of the larger endeavor to defend democracy as Microsoft defines it. Uh, so those great people, actually many of them are my friends and proud of them, um, come from international organizations, government work, from the US government, from the British government, from other NATO uh, governments, or international organizations like the UN and the OSCE come and work there, uh, conducting digital diplomacy in the way now digital diplomacy is being uh, defined um, can be at least two ways. One, diplomacy conducted online, mostly using digital means. And second, diplomacy conducted online and offline, not definitely online, about cybersecurity, about uh, international digital and cybersecurity norms. Um, diplomacy could, you know, whatever digital means there be, uh, diplomacy would be mixed uh, in terms of its digital and uh, physical domain to a degree uh, that uh, our lives allow. If we humans, I guess, uh, decide to live 99% um, online, God forbid, then diplomacy will be 99% digital, but uh, that would be uh, the, the proportion. So digital diplomacy has become uh, a lot more attractive to some of my friends who said governments are large bureaucracies and I would love to work there, uh, but what I do next. Um, and now they have options to mm, help uh, governments and their governments and international governments, but also um, go switch their sectors. Um, and sometimes when we speak about diplomacy being conducted uh, by private entities such as Microsoft, maybe Facebook, maybe any other uh, player, uh, we think of uh, those entities as mercantilistic uh, uh, players uh, who would only get and not give. Uh, but at this point, uh, what one of the things that makes me happier, um, having uh, been engaged in some of those efforts, something like working group of uh, um, Paris call on cyber and uh, trust and security in cyberspace, which is led by the French government and uh, uh, and Microsoft. Uh, there is one key term uh, that excites me, and that is multi-stakeholder. Um, there is uh, no one player that could, uh, um, in classical diplomacy, in public diplomacy, or in digital diplomacy, all of them have you know uh, sharing the umbrella of diplomacy. Um, it is quite quintessential uh, to have many players. If you don't want to have many players, there will be many players who have just to deal with them. So these people are uh, working around the notion of multi-stakeholder, which is public, private, non-governmental, um, or any other players. Um, and uh, that is great. So uh, diplomacy is relevant. That also that, that is also great, will be needed in the future and will be needed not only from the state, but from other players to do good things, hopefully. So sometimes, unfortunately, we face disinformation. And in this specific uh, time, I would like to ask how disinformation has affected um, the digital diplomacy or diplomacy at all, and how your friends that you mentioned today, how do they face this? how they deal with this in massive um, disinformation campaigns. Oh yeah, tricky, totally tricky. You know, you, you got digital means, 
um, as a fire. You may warm your house or burn your house, uh, and uh, depends on who you are now. So currently, it is kind of a club. Those people like government of Denmark and ex-ambassador of Denmark went into working, ex-digital ambassador of Denmark went into Microsoft to work for them, uh, actually, uh, and uh, the government of France, government of Netherlands. So it's it's a club now. Um, and clubs are great, but I wish those clubs to become larger. Uh, and uh, so far, those are limited to uh, mostly democratic uh, governments. And some of those who are more susceptible uh, to using uh, or abusing uh, digital diplomacy um, under some umbrella and spreading disinformation, propaganda, or anything else. You know, those I'm not seen there. Um, uh, there will be increased uh, cases where people would abuse those as uh, plat you know, platforms like Facebook and others were abused uh, to interfere into national elections through uh, anywhere else. Uh, there will be challenges so far uh, you know, it's a small club. It's a growing club. Um, if, if we track time-wise, uh, it would start somewhere, you know, from 2017 and 2018. And uh, these people are now getting together. 2020, as you know, has not been very fortunate. These digital peoples, people uh, to meet each other and uh, mingle a little bit and exchange more uh, human uh, moments and uh, exchange some professional thoughts additionally. Uh, but uh, so far they're there. Good, you know, good news is that they're uh, um, great professionals. Uh, and uh, the other news is uh, they have to be wary of uh, that digital diplomacy being uh, uh, exploited. And I expect it will be exploited very soon. And what could Mr. Harazan add in regard to disinformation propaganda, please? Well, <laughs> Here's uh, my take on it, Nancy. So the growth in the propaganda business, disinformation business, that has been noticeable because of the broader availability of technologies, it, as a phenomenon, it's nothing new. Again, the digital facility is not new itself. It's technology. And technology has been as old as humanity, uh, even in uh, the times of ancient Greece, there was technology that used to make things easier. The invention of printing press compared to the clay tablets used in the ancient world was a progress in technology. And that sort of helped facilitate the storage and transmission and dissemination of knowledge. Same way radio. Same way uh, TV, now we have the internet, post-internet era. Uh, so one thing that has happened is the democratization of diplomacy. That pyramid that used to host where diplomacy is conceived and conducted has flattened. There are a lot more stakeholders in this. And that's a fact. Uh, we can look back and see how societies have handled the introduction of new technologies in public life that have changed uh, in their times, the manner in which nations have conducted their businesses and draw conclusions and apply those conclusions here. 
in this case to see how we can fight this information because it seems to be a byproduct of technology, technological progress. And it also seems to be a something that accompanies progress in technology, advances in technologies has accompanied all the time. There are good ways in which technology can be used, there are bad ways in which technology can be used. Sometimes when one represents a nation who engages in this information, uh, that may be a good thing because this information too is a legitimate way to pursue national interest. It depends on why you deploy it, how you deploy it, and for what purpose and against whom. So nations do engage in this information and, and, uh, and intelligence operations, and, and, and that's just a fact of life. We just need to build resilience in the Western world, let's say, those of us who uh, do not find the kind of disinformation uh, the democratic world faces and confronts, let's say, that coming from Russia, China, sometimes Iran, sometimes other nations, aimed at undermining uh, societal cohesion in our countries, we need to build digital resilience to understand and, and, and handle and, and address those threats that come with uh, foreign disinformation and assist nations who do not have those capabilities and cannot do that alone to handle that by uh, teaching uh, stakeholders in these nations, giving them the expertise, giving them the means and, and helping them feel themselves and become part of the democratic global community that has a vested interest in not letting foreign disinformation undermine societal cohesion and democratic foundations of their societies if they happen to be societies committed to democracy. One thing I'd like to uh, underscore is diplomacy generally is a very procedure heavy pursuit. You need procedure to conduct diplomacy because you need wise diplomacy, you need informed diplomacy, you don't need populist diplomacy or unprepared one. Uh, sometimes the availability of digital means uh, in the hands of an erratic leader results in someone waking up 3 a.m. in the morning and tweeting uh, a message that then gives headache to everyone else around him or her or in the world who are trying to decipher what this guy wanted to say. Source confusion undermines proper diplomacy. Diplomacy depends on procedure. Uh, you have the defense folks contribute to how a nation articulates and conducts its diplomacy. You have the intelligence people. You have the general government agencies. The interagency process is part of how a nation defines and deploys its diplomacy. So with these digital means available, uh, sometimes that dilutes the process and the procedure. Uh, and that, I think, uh, every government should be mindful of that. Another good thing that comes out of the availability of new modern digital means is people-to-people -people diplomacy, when governments are unwilling to engage or unable to engage. Let's say uh, some of those, in, in our time when I was in government, uh, we didn't have the broad availability of digital means, but I think in the mid 2000s, there were numerous people-to-people -people efforts using digital diplomacy to connect, network, build common understanding on things that their own governments were having difficulty working on.
that may help if the effort is genuine, if it's supported by a genuine actor, sponsor, whether foreign or domestic, if the effort is aimed at bringing those societies together, helping them help their respective governments overcome their differences, it's a good thing. So again, uh, it's about wisdom. It's about uh, contributory participation in how one crafts, conceives, articulates, and deploys diplomacy and how one engages some of those most uh, useful groups of, of respective populations to engage and take advantage of, of what modern means of government and public diplomacy afford. And it's a challenge that's been around uh, for as long as humanity has been around. And I think we will see uh, many examples of how that uh, challenge is being properly recognized and addressed or sometimes mishandled. Uh, Mr. Zviar, do you have any comments on this? Um, I, I completely agree with uh, Armin. In that case, I'm really hopeful that our young diplomats that are listening to us have gained the best expertise out of this, and they will take them uh, not as granted, of course, and they will use your expertise uh, as well as uh, feel free to share your feedback with us, dear listeners. It will be very helpful, very helpful for them as well. Thank you so much. Um, I have really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, which was very important in this digital era. So hope to see you soon as well. Um, thank you. Goodbye. The following series of podcasts are being conducted by Digital Communication Network in partnership with Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom. 